Here we go. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are here today with a good man, my friend Chris Howard. Chris, we're going to be talking about a lot of things today. Welcome to the corner. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so first and foremost, usually I like to go through somebody's background and see who they are, kind of what it was like, you know, where you grew up and all that stuff, where you were born and what life was like. And we'll get into the other stuff. So who's Chris Howard? Where, where are you from? Uh, I grew up in the Valley. I, think, I guess I can't really say the Valley because it's Burbank. Tell people you're from the Valley. The Valley, Burbank's part of the it's Valley. It's Far Valley, but it's, yeah. it's not really, really Valley. Right. Um, uh, uh, I grew up in Burbank. Mm -hmm. uh, came from a pretty dysfunctional household. My mom was... You know, where you grew up and all that stuff, where you were born. Go ahead. Uh, my mom was uh, schizophrenic, mm -hmm. essentially. So I like was bouncing from my mom's house. Yeah. Uh, living with my grandma my dad it was like a whole crazy situation there's like basically all this pandemonium and stuff because my mom's mental illness mm -hmm. um they were trying to get custody of me and my grandma ended up getting custody of me and basically um i was living in west hollywood for a little bit with my dad and then um ultimately i ended up landing at burbank and i was it was basically my grandma at the time was i don't know 70 something years old and my mom was going in and out of mental institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the joke I was used to say is like, you know, I thought our address was 5150. There were uh, cops kind of showing up at the house all the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I really found early on because uh, like my grandma's born from like, uh, a different uh, demographic, you know, like it was just a totally different mm -hmm. um, institution that she had come from. Right. Um, I think uh, for me, it was having like the like a strong social group of like friends who essentially we all uh, became drug addicts and alcoholics. Mm -hmm. um, so those guys basically, you know, I did drugs for a long time, uh, managed to have a bunch of seizures and destroy my life. And then uh, somewhere around uh, age 24 or so. 23 24 mm -hmm. i got sober um i'm definitely not someone who like got sober wanting to be sober right. i had i had no interest in uh like staying sober when i got sober essentially um i got sober because i didn't want to be a loser anymore how old were you then uh 23 i was 23 years old i think that's what it was yeah and you're sober how long now 12 and a half years okay. almost 12 and a half years um so yeah so you didn't want to get sober but you did yeah, I always laugh because the other day I was in a last night I was in a meeting and they were like, they're talking about all you have to have is a desire to stop using. I, was like, no Fuck, I didn't even have a desire to stop using. You know what I mean? Like I just literally uh, didn't. I had a desire to not be a fucking loser the rest of my life. Okay, so then how did that even happen? Uh, what you going in the direction of recovery? Um, oh well, so. My house ended up getting raided for the second time. Um, for what? Selling drugs. Yeah. Yeah, selling pills and weed. Was it like and the Oxy 80s or something? A lot of Norcos that time. Yeah. I was selling Oxy 80s, but it was Norcos that time. And it was the second time you'd been raided? Yeah, first time was for a lot of weed a couple of years before. Before this whole uh, yeah, before. legalization. Yeah, they, but no, no, no. Back in the day, I was like, I was talking to someone about this. 
before is like, you know, you get caught with a call. I remember this one time I was walking down the street mm -hmm. and all these cops knew who I was. One, because one of my best friend's dad was a Burbank cop. Mm -hmm. But the other reason was because my mom, they mm -hmm. knew exactly who I was. So I'd be walking down the street and I'd be like 14, 15 years old. And I was drinking one night and this cop was like, dude, Chris, where the fuck are you going? And totally couldn't pull me over. Like now what I knowing what I know mm -hmm. has no right to pull me over. And he's like, what do you got? And I was like, this dude searching me for sure. I just pulled a quarter ounce of weed out of my waistband. And he was like, well, what are we going to do about that? I was, like, oh, I was like, we're going to, I think stomping it out on the ground would be a good idea. And he's like, that sounds like a pretty decent idea. And oh, just like, God. let me go. But back in the day, you get a quarter ounce of weed, dude. You're going to jail. Right. 15 years old, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, so by the way, Wes Heim says, tell Chris to smile. That's my dude. That's my dude. Wes, I love that fucking guy, dude. Um, uh, he got you to smile too. He did. He did. I love, him. I love him. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so where are we at? So the, you got in trouble for selling drugs. Yeah, I got it. A couple okay. Times. Okay. How did I get in recovery? That's what the question was. Right. Thanks for redirecting me. Right. Um, my house got raided. There was this one, uh, this Armenian guy who was a cop who hated my guts because he watched me for like five or six years, kept getting, I just get let go on shit because my mom was crazy. Mm -hmm. And I was very respectful of the cops. Like, I'm not going to just get crazy with these fools yeah. knowing that they're in a position of power, especially when I have shit on me, that's going to make things worse. I'd always kind of placate into that. Mm -hmm. And, um, this sergeant showed up and he was like, bro, I'm not going to be the reason you go to state prison. Get mm -hmm. your shit and get the fuck out of here. And I knew this one dude who was sober. He was like, call this house up. Um, call this dude up. We'll help. He, he can help you get sober. And um, I called him up and he was like, yeah, just come in the house. There's like no deep. This is 2009, bro. There was no detox. There's no parody act the way that it is right now. Like no one, there was no, the treatment industry wasn't an industry. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't there like was it no was. industry, bro. Right. Um, I mean, there were centers. There but was, was, but I'm just saying. It's not like it was now. Actually, it was better then because everyone was so interconnected and right. tight. Like right. it was more of a communal thing. It wasn't like these hedge funds and things right, like right. that, you know? Um so I call this dude. He's like, yeah, just come in the house, bro. I was like, dude, I'm going to be detoxing, you know? And like back then it was like, well, you think you can just cold turkey it? And I was like, yeah, fuck it. Like I owe this one. It essentially mm -hmm. went into the house and, uh, detoxing from what, uh, at that point, bro, meth, uh, any opiates, meth, heroin, methadone, uh, methadone. Yeah, no, I had a bottle. Like How many milligrams were you on? I don't even know. I would just drink the bottle. And you kicked this shit in that place with yeah, no comfort yeah, meds yeah, or nothing? Nothing, nothing? Are you nothing. kidding me? Yeah, nothing. You probably looked like they would have had to do nothing, an exorcism. Nothing. No, 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 bro. I was actually handled it pretty well. Did you? But it felt like my bones were on fire for like for eight sure. weeks. That's what methadone does. Yeah, it embeds into your bone marrow. So mm -hmm. I go in there, fall asleep. Uh, I showed up super loaded. Not super loaded. I showed up loaded, though. Mm -hmm. Fell asleep, and then we woke up for dinner. Then we go into dinner, and like as I'm sitting in dinner, they're like, "Oh, everyone's sitting around family style. This is nice, bro." Like, and I had been in Tarzana Treatment Center once before, right? Uh, but sit around, and then like someone just is like, "Yeah, I didn't like he lied to his mom or something." These fools are just like, "Fuck you, lying to your mom, bro!" Like you're selling out. Like, how are you not learning from this? 
like experience. They just start giving each other feedback. And I'm like, so this was Axis House. Yeah, Axis House. So you ended up on in West LA at Axis House, not even really knowing. Waking up, to, I had no to this. clue what the fuck that was. Not knowing, I had what no mean. clue what that was. I was like, what is this? I was like, oh, we're going to sober living. He's like, there's a jacuzzi tub here. The jacuzzi tub didn't only had hot. Uh, cold water that was like you know didn't even work you know right. um so the guy they told you to call to get sober rather than uh go to prison was the owner of the place yeah yeah brad right and yeah. and so he just he didn't know you from adam but you just went there uh-huh. detoxed at his house and there you are yeah. right and it wasn't just the typical sober living this it was, was like it was typical for that time for that time but like yeah. but there was structure yeah, much more structure. Much more than like the average sober living. Yeah, no, the Burger King houses that exist now have it your way. No, yes, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it didn't exist. So we go have on, it your way. That's yeah, great. Burger King. Right. Um, so yeah, I went in there and it was like a year long program. I grew up like honestly when I got sober, like again, like I had no interest in staying sober. When I got there, I was like, dude, this is a single family home. There's no cockroaches running across your forehead and there's food here all the time. And the dudes are pretty cool. Like I'm down to be here. Like I grew up like super poor, like the apartment I lived in when my house got raided was like a roach motel. Mm -hmm. So it's not like one of these things where I'm not like the dude who's like, oh, I came in at rock bottom. I for sure could have went deeper. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Uh, Weren't you living off of food stamps and shit like that? Yeah. 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 When I grew up, we lived off food stamps, all that shit. I mean, that's why I sold drugs, to be honest with you, because it was just a different opportunity, a faster Mm -hmm. way to make money. So, um, yeah. When you were growing up uh, before all this, were you educated at all? Were you going to school? Were you ever performing in school or? Nah, nah, man. I was in like continuation schools. Like when I apply myself, I'll get shit done. Yes. You know? Um, but like I was in a continuation school called Monterey and Burbank, and like they would let us like it was like literally everyone who fucked up school, and like we were all so bad that they literally just put us in one institution because if one of us was even in one classroom, we'd poison the well. Yes, you know. So and everybody knows that continuation schools are pretty much like a, a pink slip to doing lots of drugs. Oh no, it's totally. And then they let you out of school three hours earlier than the other right. kids. I'm like, I'm being rewarded. More, yeah, more, for more time to go life. get loaded. Exactly. I'm being <laughs> I'm being rewarded if for we even up. if I even made it to school. Believe me, I went to continue. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. And so, but honestly, the continuation school teachers knew what the deal was, and honestly, were probably more equipped mm-hmm. to handle us. Yes, because they cared. My 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 experience. There was this woman, Miss Burke. Mm-hmm. Like she went. I could I couldn't have done math. I hate math to this day. That woman is the only reason why I ever figured out elementary algebra, bro. Right. You know what I mean? Like she got me through high school and helped me figure out actually I think it was high school algebra by that time but to me it's all the same shit it was very difficult but like that whole time there was like literally just sitting with headphones and doing packets packet work they let us listen to music because they were like listen you don't want these kids getting activated Mm -hmm. because throw chairs across rooms like fools were crazy though in school you know what I mean I could see that with with that area too so so then once you were at this particular sober living, how long did it take for you to actually did make the decision? Like, I think I need to follow this way of life. I think I need to stay sober. Probably around six months. That's okay. like really how I remember it. it. May have been eight months. But so up until that six months, were you often romanticizing, fantasizing, thinking about 
still getting high, having a plan. I had a really good plan to get out and get loaded. I had no, uh, wasn't, but at this time I was still like kind of placating to what everyone else, what the culture was. So I'd be like, oh, I'm not going to get loaded. So I'd be like this. I'd be like, when I leave here though, I'm going to sell drugs. You told them that or you thought? Yeah, this? no, I told them this. I told them because they like, you need to be honest. Okay. I was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to be part of the program. Here's my plan. I was like, dude, I really like what you guys are doing here. I think like, but I, but my rational, this is my like uh, drug addict mind, right. right? It was like, essentially, like when I came in, mm -hmm. I was like, didn't want this. Then I started to like buy into these principles and like the, the, the rigorous honesty and how direct these fools were right, with each right. other. I was like, this is badass. Like mm -hmm. I totally can get down with this right. and I'm going to sell drugs because people are going to do drugs no matter what. Right. So I, it's a business decision at this point. You guys have nurtured me enough to where now I'm thinking with my business mind and this is a really good business model. Right. So what I'm going to do is when I leave this year long program and I grow so much from this, mm -hmm. I'm going to, move out and I'm going to sell drugs because I'm working an $8 and 95 cent an hour job working at the pavilions right that above, above log cabin. Yes. So I'm going to sell drugs, but I'm going to move to a beater sober living in like uh West Valley or something right. like that, like $500 right. a month. And what their requirements usually are is like, you have to be out of the house, have a job, all, have a job all day or be in school. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just be in school all day. I'm going to use the drug money to pay for the sober living and pay for college. Right. Right. But I know spiritually my scale's fucked up. So mm -hmm. I got a, I got a solution for that too. So I'm going to sponsor mad motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and on top of it, I'm going to try to help some of my drug addict customers get into the program as well too. This was what I was, that was the so story. So I'm going to sell playing. drugs to people. And some of the guys that are fucked up that I'm selling to, Maybe I can show them this way of life, but I'm still going to selfishly sell drugs. Yes, exactly. Because yes. that's all you knew. Yeah, said that. Yeah. Pretty much that's how you were yeah. just programmed and conditioned to think that's there's no no other sources of income or generating money than what I know how to do best. Yeah, and I mean at that point, it really honestly, I say I share about this anytime I speak in a meeting, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I feel like I shouldn't share this shit around newcomers because right. I'm like, it's such. It makes sense in that state of mind. Right. In that state of mind, you're like, man, the truth is I can't make that much money anywhere else. It's like, damn, I could go to college. Damn, it would be easier because, like, my schedule is flexible. Da, da, da. You, like, feed into all this kind of crazy shit, you know? Right. So that was, like, what my mentality was. And then somewhere around six months, I was at the log cabin meeting. And back in the day, log cabin, remember where they have that? that new parking structure when you come out of log cabin you look across right across the street there used to be a cul-de-sac though oh yeah, yeah and yeah. it used to say dead end uh -huh. so one day it's the hokey part of the story where right. if i was a newcomer I'm like shut up fool yeah but like i was this speaker she was speaking she was in tarzana treatment center that's the only thing i remember about her share because mm -hmm. i was in tarzana treatment center that was the and i was part. thinking about like this whole drug dealing idea and i was like I saw the dead end sign. I'm like, I'm going to end up a fucking loser. And the only thing I didn't want to do was end up a loser, which is ironic to me because prior to me getting sober, my greatest aspiration was to do five years in prison, get SFE tattooed across my stomach because all the men that I grew up around, that was their rite of passage into adulthood. Mm. Like anyone that I had saw that became a man, went to prison, came out with that stamp, Put in whatever work they needed to put in. Representing into. the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley all day, you know. And for me, I, that was the only way I was going to be able to grow up mm -hmm. was to do, was to put in work and go to prison and become a man, you know, which is obviously 
ignorant as shit knowing what I know now. Mm-hmm. Um, but poverty, uh, you know, my social group, lack of motivation, whatever else you want to call it, like right. that was a very viable option that seemed like, hey, I would have some status and uh, ability to help myself, you know? So between the lady at the log cabin that shared something and you seeing a dead end sign, and do you think also the culture of the house that you were in where they told you to be uh, honest and you were being honest with them, you weren't bullshitting, you just, this is the plan you had. What was the shift in perception? Did something happen? Like, did you, did they group you into learning to change your mentality or did they redirect you with grace? I mean, I, let's be real. Places like Axis and and Liberty House and New Life House and these types of highly structured sober livings in, in Los Angeles that have been around for a while, they don't sugarcoat shit. They don't, yeah. they, they don't like beat around the bush. They're pretty straightforward. What was your turning point? Yeah, I think that is like, I think like when I think about 12 step is like when they talk about working with alcoholics, the message needs to have depth and weight. And mm-hmm. I think someone looking me in the eyes, like this is a bad story and I probably shouldn't say it, but I think it'll say illustrate it. the point. Well, well I'm going to say it anyways. Yes. But um, like, I remember one time I was in this house meeting and my mentor looked at me and he was like, you're such a bitch right he's like you're such a bitch and in today's therapeutic world that would like not be okay ever yeah you know and at that time i was like i like literally started stewing and he's like he's like he's like taunting me a little bit too he's not a clinician he's just like some other alcoholic and he Mm -hmm. goes he goes he goes um you look upset chris what's wrong you seem like you're upset right and i'm like yeah, I'm fucking pissed. Like, you can't call someone a punk or a bitch. Right. And then he goes like this. He goes, was something I said wrong? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I think you know. He's like, well, let's break it down. He's like, you sold drugs in your house, right? I go, yeah, I sold drugs out of my house. Of course I did. Who was living in your house? I was like, me and my grandma. And he's like, so you had heroin addicts and people coming inside of your house, in and out of your house with your grandmother there. Mm. And I was like, and like at this point, it's starting to sink in what the message is. Yes. And I go, yeah. There's a method to his madness. Yeah. And I go, I go, yeah. He goes, that's some bitch shit. (laughs) And it was one of these things where, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's how you you can cultivate that message without directing it that way. Sure. 100%. There's other ways. 100%. I think he was a little off his rocker and Mm -hmm. I love him to death because he saved my life. And um, there's a way to kind of help people recognize their shortcomings without going down that route. But for me, the impact that that had on me was uh, paramount in terms of forcing me to look at certain aspects of myself that I just didn't want to look at or no one was willing to challenge me on. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I can assert myself in certain dynamics. No one was really willing to push back on it. Mm-hmm. And he was the only one really willing to go, you know, that is some fucking whack ass shit. Like, yeah. Why would you let these people come in and out of your house that were like literally nefarious drug addicts mm-hmm. and just, you know, they could have robbed your house. And someone did rob my house one time while my grandma was asleep in the living room. Oh my God. You know? Um, so I think that was one of those things where it was like, eh, okay, maybe there's some validity to me, like not being a great human being. 
Right. You know? Yeah. Let alone not being the best drug dealer either because totally. of the raids and such. Yeah, yeah, it just happens. Okay. So then uh you stayed in, in Axis House. Now usually they charged people um a few thousand dollars per bed. Uh -huh. you, you were scholarship there, correct? Yeah, the whole time. And why did they give you that love? Just because you begged? No, I didn't beg. Did I was just, just like, oh, I, I, bro, I'm not, I'm, I'm not one of the. I don't need to hit my head a lot. I learn from other people's mistakes in social dynamics. Right. I'll fuck up on my own, but yeah. in a social dynamic, if I'm watching people get burned for shit and what the social norms of the group are, to be honest, you don't lie. Like there was a whole group that. I, I ended up spawning in the house because all these dudes were like, you know, like also wouldn't just tell on anybody mm -hmm. at that time, you know, um, because there there's so much of like the snitch mentality ingrained in me. And all these guys were like sneaking out, going to strip clubs, shit like that. And then we're like finally in this one one uh, house meeting and like everyone's like trying to give people feedback. And I just like was like. Dude, I just like blew a gasket. Like, I didn't get crazy. I was just like, you guys are fucking full of shit. What? Like, don't come up in here fucking giving no one feedback. You fucking snuck out of the house last night to go boom. And I just started pulling cup, boom, 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 pulling covers, pulling covers. Crazy. I was like, dude, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. And then, and then, and then Brad saw what happened. And Sam, who was uh, the other house manager, like, dude, it just turned into this whole long ass group because the house was toxic as fuck. And like, I just had gotten to a point where I was like, no one's really about it. Shit. Right. Like, they're not. Like, we're, we're not. And actually, it's just going to keep getting worse if, uh, if we do, if we don't get honest mm -hmm. about it. You know what I mean? So I think for me, at that point, it was like, I'm, I got nothing to lose. Actually, I don't even give a fuck either if right. you're going to be pissed off because the reality is, is like the same snitch. I remember always up until about two or three years ago, I had always viewed a snitch mentality as mm -hmm. being really ingrained in drug culture. Right. But for years, I had always believed that. But then I started looking at society. Being a snitch is not good, period. The, right. the public perception, whistleblower, whatever it is, is a... Uh, um, they have multiple different names labels, for it, yeah. labels for it in society where it's like, dude, if you tell the truth, bro, you're going to have some problems. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I think like for me, I was like, oh, shit, like that's like the path. Then. Like it's the path of uh, most resistance really when it comes down to it is because you're going to end up having to upset people because you're trying to imbue uh norms or an ideology that nurtures people's growth and like none of that shit's helpful you know it's really interesting that you say that because i too i, I was i got sober in a, in a recovery home that the man that ran the house he a, a lot of the culture was um incorporated into his house from the learnings of working alongside larry from Liberty House mm -hmm. or the original Discovery House, which was back in the day, yeah. which I believe was shut down. But uh, I came in, I saw something that uh, that it didn't sit well with me, but I was also asked not to say anything. I'm about 14 days sober and I'm watching this guy break into a, a, a medication closet and stealing his own Suboxone. And so I'm like, the dude asked me not to say anything. And I'm like, I won't, I promise I won't say anything. Well, and then that night I just see him at this meeting and it, it just, it's all kinds of shit. Like uh, tons of stuff was going through my head. And I asked this guy that actually had some solid recovery. Yo man, like I saw this today and, and what do I do with this? And he goes, 
dude, you either go tell that guy he needs to tell on himself or you need to tell on him. I'm like, but I'm not a snitch. He goes, you don't understand. Like in this, in this, in this environment, there's no such thing as snitches. Mm -hmm. Snitches are like on the streets. That's, mm -hmm. that's street mentality or in prison or jails that there you don't snitch. But here, like we're trying to save lives. And so later on when I went, I actually, I told the guy that he needed to tell him himself. And then he ended up telling on himself, but told on me too, because I had some secrets, right? I wasn't serious at this time. I'm new. I'm 14 days in still wet. Right. Uh -huh. And, um, I remember that our friendship immediately diminished. Like it was so-called friendship, right? Yeah, yeah. Our unhealthy alliance diminished. But but I learned like early on that, especially from my counselor too, who said that at the Discovery House, the original Discovery House way back in the day, there was a female who, there was two girls that were, they were roommates. And one girl saw her other, her friend sneak in some rigs and heroin. And so she was shooting, She she told her, what are you doing? And she goes, Please don't tell on me. Don't don't rat me out. Don't don't tell on it. And turns out that night she overdosed and died. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, had she told or said something to somebody, mm -hmm. then she could have saved her friend's life. So it's it's senseless when it comes to to this type of talk, like snitching. Mm -hmm. And I often now I find myself saying the same thing. My counselor, you know, the yeah, guy yeah, that ran the course. place, to the guys in my house, like this is different, man. This is accountability. And and the type of environment you were in, from my understanding at the time, access was like that, like over a period of time, probably with the help of you and other people that took it seriously, you start, you start redirecting people and you're not about, it doesn't matter if you're hurting their feelings. It's about telling the truth. Yeah. It's about telling the truth and keeping the sanctity of the environment healthy. Like, so you don't have other people who come in and poison the well. Right. You know? Right. So you stayed there for how long? I mean, I, I think I became a manager at like 10 months. Mm -hmm. Like just like Brad know. could depend on you at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then like I was like a real manager at like eighteen months. Mm -hmm. It was like a baby uh, training wells manager right. for eight months. Mm -hmm. And then I lived in there as a manager. I the total time in was like three years, and then I moved out because I went back to college. Uh, I got and then I got into UCLA, and then when I got into UCLA undergrad, um, I moved out. And I worked there for another, I don't know, two or three years, maybe. No, two, two and a half more years. And then I opened Ethos because okay. Axis shut down. And then we moved the guys from Axis to Ethos. Axis became a treatment center later, too? It was a treatment center, yeah. PBRC? They had PBRC. They had, uh, they had like one, two, then like three or four places. They're and no longer? It, no, the people who bought it were idiots so so brad something. had access but then the somebody came along and bought access from him or mm -hmm. but you decided at that time you went to school and all that and you opened ethos which is now a sober living that you have mm -hmm. but brad what the, they brought the people from ethos or i mean from from access into ethos is yeah that what you mentioned? yeah same culture okay same culture same yeah, style. same accountability people holding each other accountable same thing like that okay so and uh, I'm all about good sober livings. Yeah. I'm talking like structured places that I believe in. And ever since I first caught wind of ethos, I've come and seen it. I know what you do. I know the work that you do. I, I live by what you do. I myself at the sober livings that I have in South Orange County, I, I've learned from you. And, and I think we've learned from a lot of great people mm -hmm. that really, really um, do recovery in a way that, that a treatment center wouldn't do. 
Totally. They're going to, in treatment centers, a lot of people are going to coddle the client. They're going to, mm -hmm. they depend on their stellar banger policy or whatever. Like mm -hmm. we can't let this person go, uh, go easy on them. And the reason I say this is because I worked in a treatment center in Orange County in 2010 that had, they gave me a $2 million house at the beach. It was a beautiful house. I could walk to the beach like within seconds. We, have, we would do a morning meditation, but like if I was a little bit hard on the guys for not washing their dishes or doing their chores, I would then get pulled into an office and tell, I would get told things like, Pej, you can't have a power struggle with our clients. We don't want like, we don't want them to leave or be mad that you're, you're mistreating them in their house. And I was like, I can't fucking do what I want to do in this house. Like, this isn't what I got sober in. And I'm not going to sit here and, and, uh, you know, nurture their egos. It was kind of amazing that they would go to group. It was a, a mindfulness group that they went to and they came home with their mindfulness packages. We had a house meeting that night. We talked about like making sure of being mindful, remembering to do your chores, do this, that, and the other. And then next thing you know, we, we let out for the meeting. They left all their fucking packages mm -hmm. out. I'm yeah, just like, dude, these kids will never get it. So the culture of ethos is what? I mean, the culture of ethos is really the meant to be a rite of passage into adulthood. It's centered around like personal accountability and social responsibility. It's not a treatment model. There's no clinicians on staff. It's a socially driven community. It's more fraternal. It's long term. So like long term in the treatment space, how people talk about it, they'll be like, we're a 90 day program. We're long term. That shit's not long term. That's nonsense. Long term, we're 12 to 18 months. Um, and even after that, we have a graduate house where guys will stay like, you know, a couple years, mm -hmm. they'll finish college, stuff like that. Because the truth of the matter is, is like if you're have mental health, substance abuse problems and you've had them for years, mm -hmm. like it's not going to get better in 30, 60, 90 days. Right. You might feel better. You, we used to call it back in the day going to get a tune up. You mm -hmm. get some weight. You feel a little bit better. You're a little bit clearer. But the fact of the matter is, is like to change attitudes, values, beliefs, behavior, the core aspects of an individual. And mm -hmm. granted, we're not even, you're not fully changing that yeah. no matter what. Anyways, you're trying to imbue something in them that can help them live a life that is fulfilling and sustainable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that is the major uh, disconnect is where like a lot of uh, like the difference between like a long-term recovery house right. and like a sober living is sober livings are transient. We're here. It's a social model. Like the minimum commitment, like I, the truth is, is like at ethos, I don't make people be like, Oh, you need to be here a year because I couldn't, I tell everyone this now mm -hmm. I go, it's a minimum 90 day commitment, but I go with well, a coronavirus. How did coronavirus start? Oh, you guys are going to be on lockdown for two weeks. Anyone whose head wasn't stuck in their ass knew when they said two weeks lockdown, we're going to be here a while, bro. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The human mind can't wrap itself around. I'm going to be here a year, 18 months, six months, however much time down the road. So a lot of times we go, hey, dude, just come in for a 90 day commitment mm -hmm. and like see what you can get out of this right. process. Can you foster relationships that maybe shift the way you perceive the world? Because I do actually believe in clinical. I just think there's too much emphasis placed on clinical. And the facts of the reason are the facts of the matter are because clinicians often spend let's say if tops like best treatment facility you have a therapist who's seeing a client two hours a week right and a psychiatrist sometimes one. yeah no i'm saying that's yeah. the that's insane this is the best clinical program right two hours a week and then you have a psychiatrist who sees the client in the month maybe 30 minutes right you know what i mean right. like the psychiatrist isn't going to spend that much time these two people 
often are the, the, the major decisions that are made are resting on them often. Mm-hmm. When the truth of the matter is the tech who's getting paid $18 an hour if has more if, if that, that if that has more insight on what's going on in the community than the anyone line. else than anyone else. And I'm a believer of like, you know, I like believe in trauma. I'm not like an anti-trauma person, but like the trauma narrative right now has become such an abundant uh like oh we do trauma 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 and and, and because gabor mate wrote a phenomenal book and mm-hmm. i think he's highly educated and actually does know what he talks about but right. the root of all addiction is not trauma because here's the here's the problem is we the the same people who espouse that same ideology are the same people who say we shouldn't have a one size fits all approach. Mm-hmm. If you're saying the root of all addiction is trauma, mm-hmm. you're saying that's that's it. It's a one size fits all approach. Right. It's not. Some people use drugs because they love the effect produced by drugs and alcohol. Sure. Some people use drugs because a lot of people use drugs actually because they're bored. Right. A lot of people use drugs because they have no purpose mm-hmm. and have never had the autonomy to like develop self-efficacy and feel like they have autonomy in the world and could uh, go out and become a self-fulfilled, actualized human being. Right. You know. So I think those are like the the grand I call them like the grand narratives now. Mm-hmm. Like in the treatment space is like, oh, you need to be doing trauma work. And I think trauma work's important. But I talked to there's a therapist who I know locally who's been doing trauma work before before Gabor Mate was talking about doing about trauma. Mm-hmm. And um I was like, dude, I have such a problem with this because I'm like talking to clinicians. They're like, this guy's 60, 90 days sober and they're talking, he needs to be doing trauma work. He can't even make his fucking bed. Mm-hmm. He can't, he can't suit up and show up. And like his, his, his fear of being exposed to a social dynamic, reaching out, shaking someone's hand, all these anxieties are being, being triggered up. And they're talking about, he needs to be doing trauma work. Right. I was like, dude, why are, what is that? I was like, I don't think people should be doing trauma work until they have like at least six months or a year. And he was like, oh, he's like a lot of people I work with. It's not even like, like two years in some cases because mm-hmm. they're not equipped to dive that deep. And I think there is, and then again, like I listen, I've read a tra- trauma stored in the body. Is it a big T, a small T trauma? I get all that. Right. Um, and like these guys don't need to be doing that work, you know? I see, I get a lot of guys who I've had guys who, when they got sent to me, and again, we're not a treatment program. We're just a structured sober living mm-hmm. who has guys like the other members of the community probably play a, a major therapeutic role in their peers, uh, recovery. Mm-hmm. I've had guys come to me who've been in treatments who over, I have one client who overdosed in a $90,000 a month treatment center. When he got sent to me, there were clinicians calling my house saying, do not take him. He'll poison the well. He's a blah, 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 blah. And, um, that dude's sober like five years now. No he's way. like, he's the, he's one of the major main, I don't know if he's a marketing director or something for Apple. He's crushing it, mm-hmm. you know? But at one point, he was just in a lot of these um, luxury-based treatment centers. Amenities are what the industry is. It's not really therapeutic interventions. They're selling it as that. But then they're like, you go do yoga. And I love yoga. Like, I do yoga all the time. You go do equine therapy. I don't do yoga enough. Yeah. I need it, though. And I love (laughs) equine therapy. I love horses. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think it's fundamentally important. What I should speak to too, is I think it's more important for 18 to 35 year olds who are financially dependent on their families or insurance dependent on their families don't need to be in any luxury based treatment mm -hmm. at all. They need to be somewhere. Jen Barton says, I don't, let's see here. I don't think Pandora's box needs to be open in a 28 to 90 day program. Those are stabilization. Exactly. Stabilization. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, it really is about stabilization. That's the problem. Treatment, which is really stabilization, is being pitched off as like to a lot of families. They don't know the difference. They think their kids going into they're dropping 60 or 90 K or 45 K or however much money right. they're going into a 90 day treatment center in the best case scenario. And they think their kids going to come out fixed. And it's like it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone over. I mean, these are just my perceptions, too, on this end of it. But like, I don't think some 18 year old kids should even go back home when they leave treatment. They should be launched out into the world in some sort of structured community that helps them. They should them. never go back home. That's yeah. like going right back Unless to the Unless they're visiting, game. exactly. Unless they're visiting. visiting. You're going, you're, you're going why would you go to the holidays. place where you use regularly? Go to a place where you get some real recovery and become self-supporting by your own contributions. Like It's ridiculous. And I, I often tell parents, why would you want him back? I mean, have you done any work on yourself? Like, If you did work on yourself as a parent, you wouldn't want to bring your kid back home. Let them go out and flourish, like thrive, be 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 their own individual, be, be an adult because yeah. they're over 18, yeah. right? You have no obligation to them. Yeah. But the kids are so much in fear and then they start tripping out to their families. And then the families are so much in fear that they're like, Oh, they're going to, it's like the bring them back to the nest. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, the problem is, is the problem usually started in the nest. Mm -hmm. You guys paid to ship your kid across the country somewhere mm -hmm. because you didn't have any clue to deal with them. And now he got better and you're like, let's have him come back home. And the truth of the matter is, is the best thing for him and you guys is mm -hmm. him figuring out how to navigate the world without you. Right. Not because, not because we want to break up your family system mm -hmm. or because we want some punitive intervention where we're like you got to go figure it out it's like no like becoming an adult like figuring out like there's an we're in a whole apartment right now you you're the bills like yeah. if, if you're sick tomorrow mm -hmm. well not, pay yeah, yeah yeah now's a little different but <laughs> like um uh you have to get up no matter what ends up happening you have yeah. to there there's something that's shifted where like almost in the therapeutic space like it's almost wrong to tell someone hey like you need to pull your pants up and start moving forward yeah you know where like there's almost a perception like we're in trying to imbue some um masculine machismo ideology by saying like yo i know you're struggling i know it's hard mm -hmm. the only thing you have to do first 24 hour period is make it to the next meal and push through. There are times where that you can be in all the therapy you want. You can be with Sigmund Freud, Erickson, whoever, whoever, Bandura, whatever psychologist could be sitting with you, Dalai Lama. Yeah. They're not going to have the solution is only to move forward through whatever stress, anxiety, fear, uh, hardship, grief, loss, whatever it is. The only there's, there, there's no conversation that's going to fix some of this mm -hmm. stuff. It's just picking up and putting one foot in front of the other and bearing witness and then maintaining therapy and having a strong social dynamic. And if you have AA or refuge recovery or whatever it is, smart, um, smart, like whatever it may be, um, you, you get to the other side of it.
you know? Okay, so with that said, there's something I wanted to talk. And when, when you and I meet sometimes and we have great conversations yeah. and we, I think that we pretty much see things pretty eye to eye. And This is a sensitive subject, especially like in my TikTok, I got a guy who's been trolling me and, and kind of, uh, he thinks that I'm, I'm not aware of harm reduction. I'm not aware of MAT. I know that MAT, which is suboxone maintenance and other forms of medication assistant treatment, um, it's become more common. Uh, there, there are in a lot of treatment systems. I mean, right now you cannot discriminate against somebody who's trying to come into your treatment center that that wants to be on suboxone or suboxone maintenance. However, if you are a center that is about abstinence based, you could always come and have the person come and detox them off of whatever the heavier drugs that they are on, mm -hmm. and then send them to a place that's uh, more equipped or more open to continuing to keep people on MAT. When it comes to recovery in your world, in your in, in your outlook on how you see things, what is your thoughts on what are your thoughts on uh, suboxone maintenance on, on, on MAT? So I have a few thoughts on MAT. So MAT, that the first thing I'll bring up is there was a conversation I was at with, uh, he's the main psychiatrist for DHCS. Mm -hmm. So, and he was basically talking about um, this dichotomy in the treatment world, MAT and basically abstinence-based 12-step steppers, essentially. Yes. And they may, they, that also translates into the clinical world exactly the same as just lay layman's world but and he basically was like you know then 12-step people are going to the map people they're not sober they're, they're never gonna they're not sober the whole time da, 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 and they go we're saving lives da, da, da. and the, the he goes he goes well here here's the problem with that like let's with tomato tomato they're sober they're not sober whatever it is yeah let's just go they're not sober, mm -hmm. right? How are they going to get sober if they're dead? That's that was his whole thing. How are how are people going to get sober if they don't exist anymore? Right. And I think with MAT, I think I think that I think there's people who need it 100%. You have chronic relapsers, people who are overdosing stuff like that. Um fentanyl is like a huge thing so i'm like i'm supportive of mat in the short term i think there's this is where i start sounding like a conspiracy theorist but i have a bit of a problem with the people who created the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. profiting off of the treatment of it um and i think that probably shapes some of my perspective on this because I, listen, I've shot drugs over Suboxone. I know people say you can't get loaded on Suboxone. I abused Suboxone for a long time. So my, my perspective's tainted on it. Right. They, I don't, my personal opinion is if you're on Suboxone, you're not, you're not, you're not sober, but I don't actually think that necessarily matters if you can increase your quality of life. And I think that's where maybe with like 12 step people, I may be more, more, more controversial mm -hmm. is because there's, this is a problem I have actually with all treatment. Treatment is always based out of, out of an abstinence-based model, mm -hmm. substance abuse treatment specifically. Abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And I believe in abstinence. I live abstinence. Mm -hmm. Abstinence ain't going to work for everyone, especially in today's world. It's just not going to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. We have how many weed sober livings that exist now? There's a weed-friendly. Weed yeah, friendly sober livings. And um, I lost my train of thought. Where was I? You were talking about uh... oh the measure the measure is always abstinence. Mm -hmm. 
when in my opinion the real apps the the real measure should be quality of life mm -hmm. and then abstinence i don't think you're going to be able to do real deep trauma work or introspective work on a like suboxone i just I, I, it's very you're you're cognitively blunted it is an opiate derivative so you're not going to tell me you're like fully conscientious in there i think you might have and this is where i might be trying jumping making the jump you might be able to get to that through maybe some of the psychedelic stuff that's coming up mm -hmm. um actually doing deeper work through that but that's a whole different story right. than opiate derived right uh, actually i think ricardo El that's my dude yeah he's he knows how i feel about that stuff yeah he's talking about some of that stuff as far yeah, as psychedelics psychedelics are no longer he, deniable medicine yeah no i i don't and, and i agree with him and i believe that they're being used now for people that have mental health uh, 100%. to to help increase their to, to break depression if, if i'm not mistaken or anxiety yeah, there's also like uh, one microdose no i don't that, that i've read some of the microdosing stuff i haven't read enough on it but some of the microdosing literature is very i think like full-blown psychedelic experience seems like the way to go mm -hmm. um i'm not fully educated on that so i don't want to act like i'm some uh super I, I knowledgeable a, person i have a few friends that work in uh in a primary mental health facility where they are actually using those to help some of their patients. And one of them who was against it before is now telling me that he's seeing evidence-based, like where it's effective. It's actually helping people who, who aren't really, you know, they got a lot of mental illness and it's mm -hmm. leveling them. It's helping them out. So yeah. I'm always open to learning more about it too. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm my major reason for all of that. And even if they end up using it for addiction in the long run, mm -hmm. The addiction profile of uh, hallucinogens and even MDMA, to be honest with you, ketamine's a little bit more sketchy because I've met a lot of people addicted to ketamine. Right. Um, but specifically hallucin hallucinogens and MDMA, the addiction profile of these drugs are relatively low. Right. I mean, the, I can think of two people who I knew my entire career over 12 years who were addicted to uh, psychedelics and they're both psychotic. Right. They were, they both had schizo schizoaffective as um, a result of doing psychedelics. Who not that? Who knows? Tomato, possibly is it? tomato, tomato. Like, right. do you know if it was the genetic predisposition? Probably as a result of that. But most people don't have like serious addictions to hallucinogens. They usually don't want to do it that frequently. Right. It's right. Like a, you don't see. But yeah. Like, throughout my life, I've only seen a couple of people mm -hmm. that were regular LSD users, like. But you didn't. It wasn't something that you did every weekend or yes. every day. It yes. wasn't like weed or yes. Something. And that's why that's why I tend to see with like the empirical studies that I've read. Again, not a ton, but like what I have read is like it seems like it's going to change everything. That's mm -hmm. for sure. And I'd rather see people do if if it was between because a lot of these experiences you have to come off all your meds. Mm -hmm. And to me, I go well. If someone needed to do a psychedelic experience once a quarter relative to being on uh, anti, a, a boatload of antidepressants and mood stabilizers, I go, I would probably do that. The psychedelics. Yes, 100%. That makes sense. You know? Uh, so back to Suboxone. So if, do you believe that if a person is is attempting to do the 12 steps, because this is what I'm seeing more typically, there, not a lot, but I'm seeing that there are people in, let's say, AA or a 12-step program 
that uh, they start questioning, well, this guy tells me he's on Suboxone. How am I supposed to sponsor him and take him through the steps? Do you think somebody can have a spiritual experience working through the 12 steps while being on Suboxone maintenance? Well, as defined by the big book, I think they can. Be, I think in the sense of well, the, the problem is, is the, the no one talks about the definition of spiritual experience mm -hmm. in the program. People just go, I had a spiritual experience. People are like, oh, I saw a baby smile at me. It was a spiritual experience, spiritual experience, spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And how it's defined in the big book is a personality change sufficient enough to bring about recovery. Mm -hmm. it, uh, so what that means is a spiritual experience is a personality change. And the way we get to that is by being at least how the book defines it is open minded honest, open-minded and willing, right? Can someone start off their 12-step journey or go through their entire journey on Suboxone and become a better person? I think so. I, 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 I genuinely believe that their personality can still change. Mm -hmm. But are they able to do, if, if they need to do deep-rooted work, mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of a block there. That's just my personal opinion. Right. You know what I mean? I don't think they should be shunned from AA. Sure. I don't think I don't think anyone. They, the fact of the matter is, AA created a venue for that, where essentially they were like, "We're not medical professionals. We take our step back." And like, I'm not trying to be the guy who's like, "You're not fucking sober," even though I don't think you're really sober. <laughs> You know what well, I mean? That's fair. So when you say short term, you believe in more short term. What what are we talking? Like seven to ten days, a month? No, six I months? think I think like some people probably like I, I can think of a couple people, but it's so so few and far between. Uh -huh. Six months to a year. Sure. Year tops though. They're talking about having people though on suboxone like methadone, where like you're essentially like methadone maintenance. These guys like it's a one thing. You go on Venice, there's a methadone clinic. Sure. You go by that place at 530 in the oh, morning. Oh, they're lined up. It's the only time they're up at that yeah, early. They're lined methadone up. clinic. Yeah. You know? Um, so I, that's like, again, it's the same. I feel like it's a little bit of the same. You know, that's my major apprehension with it. But I think there's going to have to be people in a position who are open-minded enough to work within the parameters that the medical model is establishing, which that is what the some of the problem is, is everything has become a medical model. Mm -hmm. It's an acute care system. Right. They're not designed for long-term um, intervention. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the biggest, I think that's probably one of the major issues is that you have a, you have a medically driven model facilitating the treatment in a socially, in a lot of terms, a socially driven issue. Mm -hmm. Because what, because most people like if you're not around drugs, you're not going to be a drug addict. Right. Or where do you pick up drugs? You pick up drugs usually in your peer group. Right. So a lot of times, why is AA effective? Like I know people who fucking go to AA and have never touched steps, mm -hmm. never done anything. And they got years sober and it's just they're a part of a community. Right. You know, the fellowship is yeah. keeping them sober. And did they have a spiritual experience just from being there? Did their personality shift from just being in the milieu? There's an argument for that. Right. You know, I think when it, when you start to boil and break down these things, though, you can just argue about it forever, though, you know. For sure. Um, with that said, and if you don't mind me asking you this, obviously with ethos, what, when you, let's say, for example, somebody can't afford to go to treatment or they can't, they've already been through treatment plenty of times, depending on the person, as long as they're detoxed, you're ready to bring them in and, and show them what, what kind of recovery you guys provide within the ethos culture. Yeah. And uh, 
And then are you open to someone being on sub maintenance or uh, would you prefer that they not be, or are you starting to kind of look at that and wonder if, if you want to do that? Um, I've definitely explored the idea of doing it. I've even talked with other people about it. It's just, it doesn't work within that system. It doesn't work within that system. Honestly, there's a lot of majority of the guys who come through ethos come off their even antidepressant meds. Oh, really? Not because that's the message we're pushing, but because a lot of the guys who were in there were maybe treatment resistant in terms of being in multiple treatment centers. Mm -hmm. They abuse Suboxone. They abuse Trazodone. We don't let guys even take gabapentin. Yeah, because like, they'll abuse gabapentin they'll, too. They'll be, gabapentin's nonsense yeah. for a lot of reasons. And but. a lot of, uh, I always tripped on this, and I'm really happy that in the time that I went to treatment, I wasn't prescribed medications. I, maybe I said all the right things to the psychiatrist, but I just told him the truth. Yeah. But regardless of the fact, like I've watched, I've worked in a ton of treatment centers and I just see them fucking medicate the, sh the hell out of some of these people. I mean, they're on all kinds of meds. Medical model, though. Yeah, it's that, just, that's again, just the way it is. And in, in insurance reimbursements. Sure. Like they have to have these people on a lot of these meds to obtain reimbursement. So when they show up to your house and they have like a, you know, sometimes they, they show up with bags full of fucking all their meds that have been prescribed to them. I don't even use this one anymore. I got those. But usually when I see gabapentin in their stuff, I'm just like 600 milligrams. This, I don't like this. Well, we screen really well. Uh -huh. So like we're not, you that's know never, is. that's not, that you almost never happens because we'll reach out to the clinical team and be like, listen, like we're, we may not be the program for them. We're not gabapentin is used off label so and abused so frequently. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't allow it because every time we have, it just ends up being like a slippery slope where sure. guys are like, oh, I need more gabapentin. Like, dude, yeah, no. Right. Okay, very well. Um, so if people want to find ethos, how do they do it? What's the website? Ethosrecovery.com. Okay. And if uh, people want to find you on TikTok, what's your TikTok handle? Real Chris Howard. Real Chris Howard. Real Chris Howard. Yeah. That's my name. And you're quite entertaining. I've been watching you. I've been following you. I'm just having fun. I like it. I like it when you like when you have fun. I'm having fun too. Just push back on people's perspectives. Like we're just trying to figure shit out. Just enjoying you know? stuff. Yeah. As a man who got sober at a very young age, at the age of twenty three, how old are you now? Thirty-six. Thirty-six. Um what We'll close off with this. What what message would you like to put out there in, in as far as helping people have hope as youngsters that are contemplating long-term recovery? Anything? Um, this isn't going to sound too hopeful, but I think the truth of the matter is, and when people can digest this, like it makes recovery easier. I view it in a manner where like when you're when you're at the crossroads where you're getting sober mm -hmm. like either direction you move in you're fucked mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is if you continue to stay out and keep using drugs you're fucked, you're fucked. but there's no end in sight with that one right. where if you choose to get sober your coping strategies are shot your interpersonal relationships are shot often you have a bunch of wreckage you need to clean up there's just a ton of shit you have to walk through which is gonna suck mm -hmm. but it's a window of suck right so there's a there's light at the end of that tunnel. there's light at the end of the so tunnel. You're there's fucked promise. In the beginning you're fucked in the beginning but you can work through your being fucked there's promise right. so for someone if you're getting sober or even mental health issues too you know lean into discomfort like the shit is not going to be easy it's going to be 
super, 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 super uncomfortable at various different points. But usually, like there's a thing Navy SEALs do. They talk about in BUDS training where like um, guys basically drop out like flies, Mm -hmm. right? And what they do is the guys who succeed is they break down their days. And what they do is like, I just need to make it to my next meal. Mm -hmm. I just think, because if you start to think about the 90 day hell week or the, the, you know, six months, the two years of training, it crushes you. Sure. You can't, you can't wrap your mind around it, but if you can break the task down to, Hey, I just need to get to dinner. Right. Then you get to bed and then I just need to get to breakfast. You break it down. You break down the task in the smaller tasks. You can manage the stress much easier. So, yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoy having you on here today. Always. Like, I love you. Such a, I love you too. You're such a good man. You're it's about real recovery when it comes to your world. And that's why I always like interacting with you. And with that said, uh, thank you all for tuning in today. And uh, we will see you next Sunday with another special guest. Bye. <laughs>